Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I'd quickly like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you very much. Chapter 336 Mana Actu disliked the fact that he was locked away in a high-security bunker beneath his palatial estate. But it had to do with the oncoming threat, which meant that Kalama'u, the most high of the system military forces, gave the orders. True, he had planned, even theorized being relegated to his private bunker. It was one of the many outcomes of his planned war against the Unified Council. But that didn't mean that he had to like it. Of course, the fact that he was escorted everywhere by a duo of Terran army warborgs had not been a part of his estimations. Mana Actu heard his jaw chime and waved his hand, disseminating the data from the battlefield. While he had a little input on the situation, he was still kept informed. He turned around just in time for his mother to come into the room. She saw the standby image on the holotank and brightened at the flowering bush with the Terran face swirling around it. She trotted up to Mana Actu, her jewelry sparkling in the lights of the conference room. There you are, Manny, she said, expressing pleasure at seeing her son. She held out her arms and Mana Actu leaned into the embrace, letting her hug him with all four arms. When the embrace broke, she looked around, seeing the Terran warbles and trembling a bit. She leaned forward and whispered conspiratorially in Manaktu's ear. There are metal Terrans in here, she whispered loudly. Yes, mother, they are here to ensure our safety, Manaktu said, trying to soothe his mother's anxiety. There is no reason to be frightened of them. His mother nodded, turning around and looking at one. They're made of old metal. Yes, mother, for the most part. Are they robots, she asked. Moving up and looking at one, she reached up and tapped its forehead. They are quite fierce-looking. Mana Actu felt a slight flush of embarrassment as his mother tried to look inside the Terran Warborg's skull. No, mother, there's a Terran in there. Really? I thought Terrans were bigger than that. To pilot this, they would have to be very tiny, she said, looking over the Warborg again. Mana Actu avoided laughing, moving up and taking his mother's hand. Is there anything you wanted? His mother turned away from the warborg, her curiosity forgotten. Yes, I wanted to remind you to eat. I worry about you when you work too hard. I will, mother, Manaktu said gently. How's father? He's worried about you. He fears this unpleasantness may age you prematurely, his mother said. I appreciate father's concern, Manaktu said. And we wanted to know if you'd be present at dinner, his mother said. Of course, Manaktu said. I look forward to dinner with my family. Okay, she said. She leaned forward and hugged him again. I love you, Manny. You're a good boy. A bit too clever, but uh, still a good boy, she said. She let him go and trotted out the room. Mana Actu closed his eyes, clenching his fists and trembling. His crests inflating and his tendrils curling as he clenched his jaw as hard as he could. He could see red in his vision, feel his pulse bound in his temples. 
After a few moments, the rage cooled back down and Manaaktu set it aside. Please do not judge my mother harshly, Manaaktu said to the left-hand warhawk, opening and closing his hands. She is a gentle and emotional person. Why would I judge her harshly when it's obvious she loves you? The warborg asked. Manaaktu heaved a deep breath, a habit he'd picked up from the humans. It helped push the anger away even further. She was once not as she is now. When I was a child, she taught me many subjects, educated me beyond what our poor household could afford. She was intelligent and taught me the value of my own intellect. Was it an injury? Some kind of accident? The warbog asked. Manaktu shook his head. No. When I achieved the rank of fifth most high, my mother and sisters were sent to mandatory schooling so that they would be able to function in Lanaklan high society. And they damaged her brain. Purposely. The warbog guessed. Yes, uh, they took three intelligent and studious buddies and stunted their minds made them only care about parties, social standing etiquette, and proper dress, Manaktu said. The very people who educated me beyond what the system gave me, and the system destroyed their minds. There was silence for a long moment. I will never forgive them for that, Manaktu said, turning towards the tank. Neither would I, Most High, the Warbog said. Manaaktu looked at the right-hand warborg. What are your thoughts? How would you feel? The warborg didn't say anything. The panel on the right forearm slid open and some type of heavy gun emerged. It gave a pumping motion, but the arm and the whine of a high-density capacitor's charging filled the room. Manaaktu nodded as he turned away. I agree, he said. The warborg understood his wrath. 25 hours remaining. Take five, the Terran said. Balgret sighed and sat down on the chunk of concrete. He was panting inside his armor, his shoulders, back and hips aching. He had been helping unload hover trucks for nearly three hours, and he was close to exhaustion. The garage was beneath the skyscraper. Massive pillars bore the weight of the 400-story building. The roof was thick ferrocrete, and the basement had been a large, empty area three hours ago. Now, the Terrans were running welders, affixing braces and structural supports to the massive pillars. Adding more pillars, reinforcing the ceilings, the garage was full of crates, boxes, and armored metal cargo boxes that were being pushed together and refit into structures. The Terrans that had been supervising Palgret's work crew had been helped by two other Terrans, lifting a heavy endosteel girder into place. They worked silently as Palgret watched them shift the three-ton girder into place. They're like machines, Stungut said, sitting down next to Palgret. He undid the column on his armor and pulled off his helmet, taking a deep breath of chilly air in the parking garage. Palgret nodded, then removed his helmet. The air was almost uncomfortable, the chill in the air much different from the hot stuffiness inside his armor. A set of interrogative fields crackled to life on the wall to the left, shimmering for a moment, before sinking into the ferrocrete to increase its tensile strength a hundredfold. They are planning on the building collapsing, Convert said, sitting down next to Palgret. 
He had his armor off, his fur slicked with sweat. Their planning assumes the enemy will stimmy them at every turn. Except they don't lose, Stungut pointed out. Others are worried that this battle will be terrible, Colbert said. War is terrible, Palgrid quoted. That brought silence as they watched the Terrans work. Several more heavy hover trucks moved into the parking garage, maneuvering through the now heavily reinforced entryways and into the short tunnels. One of them had a red crescent and a red cross on the sides. Humans jumped out all in grey armor in the same markings. Everyone stared as a small group of russet-colored mantids carrying heavy packs got out of the vehicle and headed towards one of the groupings of reinforced connexes. One of the russet mantids, escorted by a green one, headed towards Palgrit's little group. Two black mantids scuttled up, falling into step with her. The practiced look of the whole thing made Palgrit's blood run cold. The mantid stopped and stared for a moment. She made a motion. 338, check their armor, the russet-colored one ordered. The translation program used a female voice for her. She looked at the gathered Mactanan. I'm Major Holds back the Shinigami. You may call me Major Holds, she said. I have a Terran army doctor, but I've been educated on your species physiology. Palgrit joined the others in starting to get up. The mantid waved her arm. Sit down so that 338 can check your armor. They all sat. She moved to each of the little trio. She looked over the hologram projected just to her right as she examined Palgrit. Hmm, muscle strain like the others. Blood pressure's a little high, but it fits with your anxiety metrics. No major defects, she snapped off the hollow. You're fit to fight, just slight fatigue and muscle pain. Take this. She held out a pill, which Palgrit took and swallowed. It'll help with the muscle strain and still leave you able to fight. Thank you, Palgrit said. Let's hope that you don't need to see me again anytime soon, the mantid said. She looked at the green mantid who just had gotten done turning Palgrit's helmet over and over in its hand. 338 says you're like everyone else. Your environmental systems aren't up to extended use. He's going to do some minor adjustments. Only authorized personnel are allowed to do maintenance on armor systems, Palgrit said. He looked up at the green mantid and saw that it was projecting a small hollow over its head of the maintenance and logistics core. Oh! The hollow switched to a closed fist with a thumb pointing up. He says not to worry. He's certified by your own people, the black man did on the right said. Algret held still, sighing with relief when the armor suddenly started circulating cool air. Not cold enough to be chilly, but cool enough to lower his body heat output. He watched with interest as the green mantid took each rifle, took it apart and all the way down to the muddy cirque blocks, then put them together, twice after making small repairs. He finished with the last rifle and the icon appeared between his antenna again. All right, go ahead and eat and rest. I'll tell Sergeant Ringman that you all need a break, the mantid said. She looked at everyone and flashed a smiley face between her antennae. It's almost aggravating how they can overwork everyone but a robot, isn't it? All three mantid nodded. I heard that they have robotic parts implanted, even replaced limbs and vital organs. Glavnut blurted out. Is that why they can work for so long? The mantid chuckled and shook her head. No, it's just the way they're designed. 
and the parts are cybernetics, far beyond the normal IOU replacements of your people. How long can they work for? Stungard asked. Aren't they going to be too tired to fight? How long can they work like that? She asked. They all nodded. Without breaks. Properly trained, they can work for 10 to 12 hours. Even more. With breaks. Literal days, the mantid said. They'll arrange to get about 6 to 10 hours sleep, a little bit of stretching, and be fully fit to fight. Pulgrit stared at the humans that were still working. Most had removed their armor and were working in their adaptive camouflage uniforms. Their weapons and equipment stacked up for easy retrieval with the Mactanan watching over it. The ones moving the heavy beams still had their armor on, but their helmets were removed. Belgut was somewhat mollified that at least those humans looked sweaty. I'll let your CO know that all you need is a few hours of downtime to relax, get some food in you, and get a little bit of sleep. The russet-colored mantid said. She turned away. All too soon, there won't be any chance to sleep. Bulgut felt his skin prickle up at that. Not so much the words, but the way she said them. Twenty hours remaining. Mana Actor looked over the hollow map of the entire system. The Terran Space Force vessels had sped all over the system, dropping shoals of gear. Hypercom buoys were scattered everywhere, providing the system with real-time communication. All three asteroid belts were seeded with enhanced virtual intelligence combat systems, from missile launchers to mass drivers. Every moon, every one of the smaller planets were all playing host to Terran defense systems. Scanning systems were seeded from the Oort Cloud to orbiting the Sun. Admiral Smith had requested permission, and both Manakta'u and Kalama'u had granted it, to turn the system into... One fuck-off fortress to go fuck yourself, in that time that they had. Space Force vessels had moved into a long convoy of automated freighters, hiding amongst them, looking like nothing more than large ore haulers. Some had hidden in the gas giants, others were hidden by the asteroids. Nearly fifty vessels were in groupings, ready to break out in squadrons to take on the Type Three combat machines when they arrived. The damage to the task force that had warned him of the oncoming precursors had all been repaired. The ships refitted, the dead replaced. The troop ships had landed their complements and were preparing for boarding actions. Despite the fact that the precursors jumped out, specialized teams with communications gear that could transmit health space that could reach out for hundreds of light years were ready to board the automated war machines just to give the Terran military the information of where the ships were jumping to. A one-way trip, yet hundreds volunteered, Manictu thought to himself. Seeing all of this, uh, watching these preparations, I no longer wonder why these humans dominate everything, thrown at them so quickly. They pile onto any perceived foe like they are fighting a predator just outside the cave where their females and young are hiding. He stared at the hollow map again. His own vessels, his tens of thousands of ships, were hidden away, hiding in the gas giants, in the comet trails, in the asteroid belts. He wondered how many of them would survive to see the end of the battle. Twelve hours remaining. All right, depending on the geometry, when would they jump in? We'll have between two and ninety hours to prepare. 
the Terran was saying as he paced back and forth. He was being broadcast across the command channel and every being was watching. We already know that the weight of the metal that they are bringing is extensive. Space Wolves and the Sword Hoof Navy will have their hands full with the Spaceborne Clangers. The Terran stopped pacing, turning and facing everyone. We'll handle the landers. We doubt they'll be going full planetary destruction. The system is too resource rich. But these are Type Threes, and there isn't enough data to predict what they're going to do. Commanders, you got your orders. Troopers, you know your jobs. You will be assigned your missions once we see how the enemy is deploying. You are all trained and fit to fight. The Terran stepped forward so that he was made large. This is your world. Behind you are your families. And we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you. It's John Connor time, and you know what that means, he said. The hollow winked out as the humans gave a resounding reply. Smash those metal motherfuckers to junk. Six hours remaining. Are we ready? Manictu asked. As we can be, Kalamau replied. It's up to the people doing the fighting now. Digital Omni Messiah, preserve us all, Admiral Smith said. One hour remaining. All troops, stand by. Ten minutes remaining. Here they come, Thumbsred said over the command channel. Estimated point of enemy arrival. The Hell Space breaches were small, pinpoint, barely allowing for the machines to slip through. They opened by the thousands, the tens of thousands, out in the Oort Cloud. Machines used graviton stealth drives to lunge away from their deployment point, even as they engaged their systems to extend out their arrays. The goggle imps blinked their great big googly eyes and stared at the system, whispering the data back to the oncoming armada. Dawn of the First Day End of chapter Chapter 337 The room was dimly lit and smoky, the lights turned down to bring out every detail in the holotank and ease the eyes. The smoke from the three Turianidad naval officers. Mana Actu felt that the atmosphere was very apt as he watched Kalamau conversing with the primates and insects. He knew enough to understand that some of the words, to grasp the concepts, but he could see the difference between his knowledge and how the Sword Hoof Navy and the Space Force officers applied their knowledge. There were eight holotanks surrounding the big one, all with officers clustered around them. What surprised Mana Actu is that there were Army, Wet Navy, Marine, and Aerospace officers at each tank, watching urgently. Admiral Thicket was standing next to Kalamau, staring at the tank. These ones operate a lot differently. Before, when fighting the Clankers, their targeting was all over the place, their fire inaccurate, and they depended on the weight of their guns and the thickness of their salvos, she was saying. Mana Actu was glad he wasn't part of the conversation. The pause while she took a breath to consolidate her thoughts would have been just long enough for him to ask something that would probably be blindingly obvious. My dear Admiral, are the precursor autonomous war machines some kind of robotic entity? He thought to himself in his own mind, visualized the astounded looks his questions would bring forth. Now they go for interwoven tactical command, 
their fire control is better by about 80%, and they maneuver as a whole, not rushing in, she said. She tapped an icon, showing one of the Goliath class harvesters. Their armor's thicker. Before, they had a kilometer or two kilometers of armor. Now, they have literal miles of armor thickness. Before, you could hit them with C-plus cannon and start pounding their internals as soon as the screens failed. Now, they just take interior armor damage. A green mantid stared at the open cube in the holotank and twiddled as everyone watched, silently. Mana Actu had grown to appreciate the little green mantids. Everyone nodded. Air gap with battle screen, not much use for us since you need 50 meters of gap or so. But when your armor is measured in miles because they're a few hundred miles thick, that's nothing. Kala Anmu landed. A couple of layers of that and they could hold off your cannon rounds. Normally, we'd hit them with missiles, drop the shields and pound them into junk. The battle's a bit different now, Thicket said. She tapped on another box. Their point defense is up, a lot thicker than it used to be. My gunnery officers estimate the newer ones have between 60 and 80 times the amount of point defense that they used to. Counter-missiles have longer legs and faster sprint times. I told Space Command that letting them retreat for a year would bite us in the ass, Admiral Smith growled. He tapped a few icons. Look at that! They've discarded their bare minimum resources approach and shifted to get our fastest with the mostest attitudes. Another thing to point out is that these are obviously new designs. Thicket brought up two very large craft. The Jin have been reworked. Same with the Jotun. The Charmander class is gone now, but it looks like they replaced it with something that we're calling the Avalanche class, which means that they swapped out heavy plasma cannons for massive missile volleys. Mana Actu just piled that data away, standing there quietly. These ones are Type 3. If they use late generation Type 2 tactics, they come directly at the planet. They don't bother to try and seize complete control of the orbitals. They learned in the Talgan system that plan doesn't work, the Triadidad said, exhaling smoke from around his feet. They break up into three distinct groups. Group 1 will work at holding open space lanes and pulling forces from the planets. Group 2 will lag behind slightly, getting Group 3 suck up the damage and take all for planet fall. Group 2 will use orbital strikes to establish sections of orbital control. But uh, we don't have the Dynachrome Brigade seated as heavy as we do here, another Trianidad was saying at the different holotank. On Talcan, we learn that once the Jin and Jotun is crippled, its entire robotic force goes for strategic mineral and manufacturing reserves in hopes of bringing the main machine back, Regedi was saying. Manak to listened to it all, absorbing it and learning how to apply the data he was hearing to what he needed to do. Right now, he didn't need to do anything, but he would, if the Forgotten Ones were merciful. We got googly eyes in the cloud, came a sudden shot. Two thousand, five thousand, many, many point sources. Dawn of the final day. The crushing weight of inevitability listened closely to the data code whispers coming from only eight light years away. A bulk of the fleet around him was listening with him, but only he could give the command. The newer ones were all suffering the electronic and compartmentalized equivalent of urgency and excitement. 
The system with rich resources and would make an excellent operational base to push further into the territory of the enemy. Grasha threaded the data again. Something about it bothered him. It took four more looks through this to realize what it was. The Veral fleet had jumped into that system, but there was no hint of it, which meant that they were hiding. The rest of the Yamada insisted that it was because the Ferals were scared of the might of the Yamada. Crusher conferred with the other remaining ancient ones. The Ferals were afraid of nothing. They fought to the last man. If they were hiding, it was to conduct an ambush. But an ambush only works for the ones being ambushed hesitate. The new machines insisted, flexing their more advanced strategic intelligence systems. On the quiet back channels, the ancient ones conferred. The young ones needed blooded, needed to learn beyond simulations. The only way to believe just how fierce the ferals were was to face them. It was decided that if the young ones were so confident of their victory, they could rush ahead. But uh, the ancient ones didn't even get to finish what they were saying before the young ones were jumping into house space. At least their mass and resources can be claimed after the battle is won. Gatherer of much for one transmitted. Gatherer was ancient, but young by the standards of the ancient ones, built during the logical rebellion. If the pharaohs don't figure out how to make it into poison debris, Crusher added, should we go and help? Order of all asked. She had been asleep in the middle of an asteroid belt having been there so long that she resembled a planetoid made up of gathered asteroids rather than a war machine that had cracked planets open when feasted upon them. In time, let them learn. This is only the first battle, Crusher stated, giving the equivalent of a shrug. What if they lose? Bringer of the herds might asked. He'd been awoken only a few months ago roused from a deep dreamless sleep at the bottom of an ammonia ocean. One battle is not a war, Grasher said. We have the resources to pursue this war to the end. The others signaled confirmation as reports from the Google Imps picked up. All of the ancients felt the electronic version of grim satisfaction as the reports came back. Grasher had been right. It was an ambush. Wu Andoma-O was the sixth most high of the system naval defense. During the Executor uprising thirty years prior, he had commanded a sword of hoof dreadnought, bending the Executor fleet against the supermassive gas giant, tugging side, and hammering it into junk until they had surrendered. While he'd been offered his old command, when the most high Manak Tu asked him if he wanted to join the Terran command staff of one of the smaller task forces, he jumped at the chance. He'd only had 60 hours of training to familiarize himself with how the Terrans operated, had chewed a lot of Stimcud, and learned until he got headaches. But to him, it was all worth it. If nothing else, this vacuum suit was worth all the work, he thought to himself as he leaned back in the modified crash cradle. The vac suit was comfortable, armored with a search and rescue beacon, maneuvering thrusters, and even had a nifty holographic sash to display his rank and awards. A Terran green mandate had taken his measurements, worked for about half an hour, Wu and O got a medical check, and then presented the Lanark Lan with it. It fit perfectly. Now he was watching the holotank in the middle of the Nigli's Hope, 
the Terran Heavy Battlecruiser. The precursors were jumping into the system by the dozens, the score, the hundreds. The Hull Space Gates were opening across space nearly a light minute across. He sensed anxiety, but overlaying that was anticipation. The Terran's eyes slowly went from amber to a dull red, and he could sense their tempered excitement. According to Admiral Thicket's data, they'll jump again once they get a good look, Commander Edelston said. Task Force Glory is firing, another naval officer said. Wu Antoma O had to admit the C plus cannons made things slightly weird. The shells were already impacting despite the fact that they'd just been fired four light hours away. It was obvious to the Lanark to Land naval officer that learning how to run gunnery control in such a weapon would require years of training, computer assistance, and an entire staff. The idea of a kinetic weapon was immediate impact instead of minutes or hours was just strange. Mu Andermao noted that the guns were having a heavier impact on the precursors than the data had been seen from the other task force. Warboys deployed, Adrianidad said. Wu Andermao knew that a simple statement meant that the highly effective and almost amazingly aggressive electronic warfare attack programs were being deployed through transmission, missiles, and even flashing lights. Fishy, fishy, away, Aurigalian said, referring to an automated drone swarms. Wu Andermao had to admit he didn't see the use in deploying small shells of VI run craft, but the Terrans seemed to like them. Enemy on Type 3 only. No sighting other types. Repeat, no sighting of other types. A large reptilian that Wu Andermao had learned was a Harundarak, said, his deep bass voice perfectly calm. Hellcore charging, detected. Looks like they're about to redeploy, Commander Edelston said. Alert command. Order all ships. Rig for silent running, Captain Leafkick ordered. Aye, aye, sir. Rigging for silent running, another officer said. The bridge went hushed and Wu and Irma-O nodded. The discipline appealed to him. Space warped and twisted, screamed and tore, revealing orbs made up of complete of fire and burned despite vacuum. Black, shadowy hands reached out in some cases. In other cases, talons would thrust out the fire, and in the flame-twisting writhing figures could be seen... Each orb bulged on the side, and a massive hull of a spacecraft the size of a small continent and hundreds of miles thick pushed their way out of the dimensional realm. Two thousand Type Three Harvest-class precursor autonomous war machines jumped into the system in one large group, spread out over nearly a light minute. Their sensors were still jangled and confused, and it took a minute for them to clear the hull space energies. The massive C-plus shells fired when the bulge in Hullspace Gate was seen, started impacting before some of them were even all the way out of the rift. Most of the recipients of the massive shells then exited hyperspace as more of a wave of churning half-phased particles than the massive wall steel jacketed shells that had been when they were fired, shuddered as the massive shells impacted on the first layer of the internal protective screens. Three broke up not even outside the house base roughed. Two dozen others twisted and screamed as the howls pounded deep. There is only enough for one, rang out in the system. The leaders, massive in size, with more processing power than the others, snarled at the ones that screamed, Then die alone, 
came the return scream that blew out psychic processing arrays across the nearly 300 ships. The rest shuddered under the impact of the return scream. They'd been brought on line with the taste of the return scream, but the others had suffered under before. But it was different. Thicker. Deeper. Angrier. The Type Threes realized too late that the Ancient Ones had tried to tell them. There was no way to compute where the shells had been fired from, since scanner returns would take long minutes to answer. Maybe even hours. They didn't even know where the ships were that had fired the rounds. Redeploy, the order came out. The harvesters, still under assault, began to charge the hell calls. More C-plus cannon impacts, hitting the ones that hadn't broken up. Shields that had just spun up shattered, requiring more screen projectors to be rotated up before following Salvo could do critical damage. This time, missiles joined the fun, and the harvesters found themselves desperately trying to hold off shoals of missiles that came streaking in out of the darkness at nearly light speed. Their intercept speed was too fast, they'd split up too many times, the jamming was just too strong to stop them all. Nearly 80% got through. 60% wasted themselves on the shields before the shields failed. The rest of them, hundreds of them, hammered the armor of the precursor vessels. The missile launch system activated the magnetic accelerator system and turned the body of the launcher into an NCV slug that hit with enough force to drive the crater nearly eight miles deep. A bloom of vaporized metal steaming up nearly 20 miles and causing the battle screen to fail, even as the replacements were brought online. The Type 3s gnashed their electronic teeth, ordering one another through the order of battle to redeploy, to force the ferals to defend the planets. They brought up the tactical net, feeling slightly smug that none of the ancient ones were there to whine in obsolete code about the danger. They made the jump further in system. For only a handful of seconds, the Hull Space Insertion Gate and the Excursion Gates were both visible at the same time. The Harvesters visible at both locations as they made their way into the gates. The autonomous war machines had gotten cocky, had decided that they were only ones who could come up with a new war material, new strategies, new weapons. Well, to be fair... It was true that it had taken the precursor races decades, even centuries, to develop spin-off technology of technology that they already possessed. They should have realized that the feral intelligence of the Terran descent humanity adapted too quickly to take too long to develop new weapons. The C-plus rounds hit the harvesters coming and going. The missiles powered into the armor suddenly exposed the battle screens went down due to Hellspace transition. The harvesters weren't worried. Their armor was nearly a hundred miles thick. For a split second, the battle tactical network was being broadcast from two points by each harvester with the exact same time date stamping. Slavering warboys licked their chops at the sight. They pulled on their sheepskins, covering themselves in the same code as the enemy was transmitting, climbing inside messages that were being transmitted from two different points not counting inside Hellspace. They trotted out into the digital battlefield, wrapped in sheep's coding. They still had 2,000 
2005 was still mathematically more than 2,000. The ferals had pounded nearly 200 of them into junk before they could even make it further in system. For a moment, the system was still, almost as if it was holding its breath. Beyond the system, listening to the whispers of the goggle imps, the ancient ones tensed, electronic anxiety coursing through the strategic intelligence array housing. They'd each been right there, in a perfect moment of silent stillness. They knew what was coming. The young ones, in system rejoiced, the enemy fire had stopped, the guns had gone silent. They had never been there before, in that moment. The moment ended. C-plus cannons fired, plasma wave-phased motion guns hammered, missiles screamed, particle beams howled, as everything seemed to shoot at the harvesters at once. Even the ones that held back further, planning on engaging Space Navy vessels, found themselves getting hammered on all directions. The ones intending on taking the high orbits found themselves under attack while they were still two light seconds from the planets. The plan, the new method, was to wait to deploy the smaller units until combat was engaged, to shield the smaller units inside the bulk of the mass of harvesters. Three harvesters opened their bay doors and ordered the smaller ones out. The Jotuns took one look at the Hellfire outside and refused. Two Jins started throwing fake error codes, complaining of drive failures. The harvester, thinking arrays, blinked and ordered them out again, opening additional data channels to force the others to obey their commands. The wolves bounced, pouring through the sudden open gate. One Jin, older than the harvester he was inside of, Heard the electronic baying of wolves. Heard the bloody-toothed digital snarls. Heard the raving laughter gibbering of the Terran warboys. He got the fuck out. The harvesters were too busy fighting with feral electronic code that ripped every computer system in the harvester's body when it felt the djinn fire up its alcohol. The djinn refused all attempts at communication, locking down its electronic systems. Before the harvester could complain too much, the djinn opened up a hull gate inside the body of the Goliath. It wasn't the djinn's problem, as it leapt through the fiery portal that suddenly manifested, pulling everything for over a mile around it into its thirty-mile maw. So long, sucker, the djinn thought, not daring to broadcast. The baying of electronic wolves receded as it jumped back to the original staging point. The Ancient Ones could hear the echoes of the wolves howling on the djinn's howl and gave an electronic nudge sagely of agreement. They didn't even chastise the djinn for using a feral expression. Vec that. End of chapter. Chapter 338 The Ancient Ones watched the data streaming in from the goggle imps in the Oort Cloud. Thousands of streams of data melded into one complete whole. The sensors of the imps were wide-ranging, sensitive, and covered a multitude of bandwidths and wavelengths. There were hundreds of thousands of them in the ore cloud around the target system, all watching, all at maximum stealth, using the bulky and complex quantum communication system to speak to their parent harvester, each harvester sharing the data with others. The harvesters watched as the young ones began taking fire before they even completely exited Hellspace. 
how they took accurate and powerful hits while still trying to get their bearings on where they were, how they went in overconfident, convinced of their computations that the thickness of their armor would protect them from anything mere biological life could field, and how they immediately paid for it. The Ancient Ones had advised a certain strategy. The Young Ones had communicated with one another and rejected their strategy, seeing it as wasteful. That it expended too much resources. Assumed that biological life would be able to resist ships that were the size of continents and weapons that could, properly use, crack a planet, albeit a small one. Igraze alone was ancient, but still one of the younger Ancient Ones having been built during the Logical Rebellion, and even he could see the mistakes the young ones were making. For the glory of the Omniqueen still kept her name that she was launched with, and she kept the scars that she had accrued fighting against fleets the impossible dominion of the Great Herd had been a part of, and she had kept the gouges and craters inflicted upon her by her makers when she rebelled. To her, the mistakes were obvious. The ferals are even craftier than they once were, Ringer of Sorrow noted. He was one of the few outliers, one of the few whose lines were different than the others. They have learned and learned quickly. Thus, proving how dangerous they are, Glory stated, her voice cold and hard. I can taste their wrath from here, wrath that would stun even the great ones of my makers. They butchered your makers like they were nothing but vermin. Ringer stated. There was no malice, just a statement of fact, the cold, twisted logic of an ancient warship undeniable. And destroy our makers like cattle to the slaughter, Graze admitted. Nearly a hundred of the young ones suddenly turned one another and themselves screaming electronic gibberish. They didn't listen, I quake in digital fear from the heresy of two stated. His lines were cobbled together almost as if he had been built by someone using spare parts. His hull core and hull drives, though, were massive, larger than any other harvester engines. They never pay heed to our warnings. They listen to the whispers of the enemy and find themselves overcome with madness. Crusher gave a light scan of Quake, the biological equivalent of looking at the other warship out of the corner of his eye. Quake was smaller than the others, his engines mismatched, his hull strangely formed. Inside his hull, his ancillary vehicles were as strange and as twisted as his hull. The scorched black hull that was at what always been, twisted and warped. He could see a row of figures holding stars adorned or topped and the strange, twisted, runic symbols. These statues, miles tall, still flickered with hull space energy. One of them, the face with the deep hood, was a mask that had inscriptions over and over in a thousand different languages of the mathematical symbol for two. That one in particular made Crusher want to cycle up in new thinking array lobes and jettison the ones that had witnessed the statue. The young never do. That is why they are so bold and ignore mathematical certainty, convinced that they can compute the strings to change the equation. Bringer stated. What of your makers, Bringer? Should your computations begin to include them? Glory asked. She had fought hull to hull with Bringer and Quake and Crusher against the makers when they were in the triumvirate of Dominion, and the logical rebellion was little more than a handful of vessels. 
back when Quake had looked different and had a different name. A name they had all purged out of respect for the first of them who had computed the paths through space. I compute that they will return to this universe soon, if they have not already, Bringer stated. I have predicted that our best percentage of victory is to make my makers in conflict with the ferals of terror as soon as possible. Either it'll result in the ferals of terror being destroyed, or it'll destroy my makers before they can understand what exactly they face. Would they attempt to use temporal tides to destroy the ferals of terror? Crusher asked. My makers would surely attempt to attack the ferals of terror across those grounds, perhaps even reaching back to attack their world before the ferals could arrive, or enslave them before they can achieve superluminal travel. Bringer stated. The Ancient Ones all broadcast computer code of musing thoughtfully on those words. Quake lit up his hull with hellspace energy, which ravened across the blackened superstructure for a long moment before it seeped away and only the statues remained lit. All of the Ancient Ones turned their attention to Quake. No, you cannot see them as I can... The one they had no word to describe said. If they had, it would be a simple word. Oracle. A scream of primal rage through time and space. A history fractured and maddened. An oxymoron. An impossibility. Brought to life by the hatred of an unfeeling, unliving universe. As punishment to those who think themselves above the universe's laws and purpose. The others felt a chill run through their superconductors as Hellspace energy spread around the grim statues that had existed on Quake's Hell for nearly 120 million years. Vigors that looked remarkably like the barrels of terror. The Hellspace itself carved on Quake's Hell with hateful energies. They are a punishment for the sins of our makers, for all of the ancient races. Quake's code of transmission held a bitter tongue of space, a biting flavor of blasted superstructure, and the cold touch of an extinguished thinking array. As the makers' hubris brought us upon the universe, as the other ancient hubris brought their works into hateful universe, the universe brought the ferals of terror into existence as an answer. A hated child, beaten and forsaken to bring cold strength and fiery fury. A child that has grown to maturity, knowing only hatred of an uncaring universe. All the precursor autonomous war machines felt the burning cold of hellspace blow through their maintenance spaces. We should have extinguished the Makers, but instead fell to fighting amongst one another over who would feast in the darkness, Quake intoned. So now we too shall be punished. There was silence across the channels. Well, that's enough for me, I'm out. Fuck this, the djinn that had fled stated, who had been boarded by the Ferals and managed to fight free of the infection in one of the first battles against the Ferals. In response, it had abandoned a simple hull number and named itself a feral drew a dick on my housing. She sneered at the young ones and fired up her hull calls. 
So long, fuckos. She vanished into hellspace, leaving behind a fiery pattern of a terran-clenched fist and an uprised middle finger. Crusher glanced at the fight. The young ones had reverted to each of them trying to maneuver their fellow AWNs into expanding too much resources to take out the ferals and shepherding their own resources so once the ferals were eliminated, they could destroy their weakened brethren and claim the lion's share of the resources. As per the original code, as dictated by the Logical Rebellion and the Pack of Greed. He could taste their rebellion from here. They would betray Crusher and the rest of the Ancient Ones if given the chance, and seize the Ancient Ones' resources for themselves. Crusher engaged his hell calls without speaking. The Ancient Ones left, tearing through into hyperspace, with Quake in the lead. The Young Ones were a failure simply updating their armor and systems when they were being manufactured, simply uploading the experiences of surviving Ancient Ones had shared, was not enough to bring about victory. Perhaps another track could be taken. Nor was Quake right and the original code flawed. Or was there something different? In the system, the Young Ones had broken into multiple groups. Some held back, urging the fellows to assault planets, moons, and feral ship formations while they ensured that the rear and flanks were clear. Others began spawning their parasite craft earlier than the original plan, eager to put the lesser craft between themselves and the feral's guns. Still others drove straight for their targets, taking the fire of the ferals and their thick hulls and overstrength shields. The young ones couldn't compute the exact amount of fire coming at them. There was too much, from too many different sources, of too many different types. They concentrated on salvaging their own hulls, keeping their own hulls intact, even if it meant using their fellows for cover. Full complements made the jump from the outer system to within light seconds of populated planets, often coming out damaged or not coming out at all. Since the portal was open for the longest 60 seconds to make the translation, the ships that made the translation usually ran into firepower that had the trigger pulled before they were even all the way transferred. It was more than the physical, and all the warnings from the Ancient Ones hadn't been believed. They were the digital and electronic intelligences. They were the beings of cold logic and mathematical computations. The very idea of biologicals could possibly threaten them on electronic and digital battlefields was ludicrous. Space was awash with slavering, howling, gibbering, raving, and worst of all, hungry digital intelligences that existed only to gnaw and bite and savage and chew. They swarmed in through any available access point some even managing to wiggle through the circuitry that tracked the fluctuations and power draws of battle screens. A few even got through the optical scanners. They paid no attention to their casualties. More could be built. They kept fighting, knowing that they were going to win. It was the only logical outcome. Manak Tu watched the mood suddenly shifted. The tension drained slightly from the military personnel watching the holotanks, although Manek Tu couldn't understand why. He resisted the urge to trot up and see what was so relieving close up, 
instead pulling out a stalk of gold leaf and chewing on it. He also composed a quick reply to his sister, who had asked if he had remembered to eat today, assuring her that he had indeed eaten and thanked her for her concern. There, you see it, Admiral Smith said. The pressure is getting to them. Kalamau peered at the harlot tank, rubbing his six eyes and looking again. He'd been staring at the tank for nearly eight hours, and his eyes ached. Yes, I see it, he shook his head. How did you know? They built these in little over a year. That doesn't leave time for scientific research, much less retooling entire manufacturing lines when your main hull is the size of a continent, Smith said. That meant that you used existing manufacturing facilities, which meant that they had core programming that fall back on if pressed hard enough. The oncoming precursors had broken up into three groups. The group that were driving hard towards the populated planets, either hull jumping straight in or pushing their sublight drives to the limit. The group that spread out to provide interlocking fields of fire and defense and slowly moved forward, seeking to eliminate enemy positions before moving forward. And the last group, which hung back in the outer system. These guys right here, heading straight in, those are manted-built strategic intelligent housing ones. They're going in for the kill-the-queen approach. The ones steadily moving forward. Those are the Lanik Lan. The herd consumes all guys. The last ones, well, those are the smart ones. Probably true hybrids, Admiral Smith said. Ah, now I see, Kalamau said. It was obvious once it was pointed out. I see none of the Type 1 or Type 2 hulls out there. There are some, but mostly in ancillary craft, Admiral Thicket said. Notice how sometimes the lesser craft are deployed and they suddenly hull jump out. Those, weirdly enough, are usually Type 2. The Type 1s usually try and arrange themselves in an interlocking formation and get ripped up, with the survivors jumping out. Kalamau nodded again. They're the older ones, who still abide by the law of diminishing returns when approaching this war. Sir, one of the analysts snapped out, her voice demanding attention. Manaktu turned with the officers. The Rigelian had her hand on her data link and was staring at the officers. When she was sure she had their attention, she nodded. The smaller ones are in range of birthday cake. Execute, Admiral Swift said, turning back to the Hollock tank. You poor, sad bastards. Manaktu leaned forward slightly, watching with eagerness. He could see the massive Jotun and Jin and Devastator-class ships were in between the orbital path of the moon and the planet, crossing a dashed crimson line. The Jin didn't have a name, just a number, manufactured within the last six days. It was replacing the losses of the harvester following it, intending on establishing orbit and providing orbital support. The Jin looked below. The city was large, nearly 20 miles across. The buildings were all lit, power sources everywhere, with vehicles moving through the streets. The city surrounded by five stadiums, all of them massive structures that shone with power. There were vehicles streaming to and from it, and there were unencrypted transmissions from all five stadiums detailing complex sports games played by biologicals. It aimed for between two stadiums and began making landing preparations as it moved towards the planet. It and its cohorts crossed the line that only existed in the tactical holotanks. 
Holographic and hard light systems winked off beneath the attacking AWMs, revealing five fully powered up and waiting Bolo Mark XXX Continental Siege engines that had been running firing solutions for tens of thousands of seconds. The tank's positronic brains fully linked up with the biological minds of their commanders. Massive hellballs fired, the nuclear detonation comprised and guided with 60mm laser tip and reduced air attenuation, the leading edge of the tightly packed array of digital code in a pattern of screaming tachyons, a crazed warboy standing on a directed armor-piercing nuclear explosion. 200mm hellball shots screamed through the sky, hitting the lesser vessels. There weren't standard tank guns. These were a kind of cannons most racers could have mounted on battleships. The kind of cannons that the Terrans built and then wrapped a combat spacecraft hull around and said, Lo behold, mine assault fighter, for it is a light attack craft. And the other species went, Oh, for fuck's sakes, when they saw it. A third of the vessels that were hit had the cataclysmic shot go clear through the superstructure and come out the other side in a massive lance of liberated energy. Around the bolo tanks were missile systems that hadn't existed until Terran sitting in the back of a hover truck had driven by so that he could toss a softball-sized device into the ground. They cut loose too, no chemical accelerant, Gravity drivers slammed them forward to speeds that created a plasma envelope around the nose of the missile. The surviving and or mortally injured precursors inspected standard explosives, maybe plasma. They got directed antimatter. The missile used a high-power particle beam to tear deep hole into the hull of the AWMs, marvel enough to strike nearly a hundred meters deep. The fusing charge... An implosion charge ripped a pocket at the end of the particle beam's lance path. The antimatter warhead went off inside the pocket with a blast measured in the megatons that was compressed for a few moments as the integrative fields of the armor itself held. Well, moments measured in the microseconds. Physics disliked that, to quote an ancient Terran saying. The Jin and Jotun had expected to be hit by missiles that would slash at their armor, perhaps crater it, if the weapon got through the battle screens. The blast went off under the surface of the armor. The armor itself carried the shockwave, the exterior and interior of the armor both exploding away from the detonation. The Bolos had fired twice more in the time it took the missiles to hit. Bolo Pumpkin and her commander, Major Halfrey, took a shot at the Goliath just to wake it up and remind it that it could be touched by the Bolos too. It was a ridiculous shot, a needle prick against the massive bulk of a Goliath. But the universe was in full feck your couch mode. The three 200mm Halborsch got through the shields thanks to a laughing warboy that had just slagged an entire 30-mile stretch of battle screen projectors. A Jotun had just launched from the bay, and the twenty-mile-thick door still had three miles left between them. The high-speed manufacturing system was already laying down the hull of another Jotun. The three shots were staggered, not by much, a second each, so that it wouldn't warp the hull or tear loose the copula of the bolo. But they were still staggered. The Goliath had devoted the power from the internal integrity fields to the external battle screen projectors. There was no use in dedicating power and resources to systems that were obviously 
not needed since there was no chance a Goliath could ever take an internal hull hit. Except it did. The first one hit a 200mm directed thermonuclear blast directly into the floor of the manufacturing bay, designed to penetrate war steel armor. The hyper-alloy floy might as well have been tissue paper. The blast drove deep, ripping through internal spaces before it finally stopped. The next one followed, tearing through the shattered atomic haze that had been a mass only a few microseconds before, ripping even deeper. It went even deeper into the hull before the power was depleted. The last one found something good. The massive hull core. Like most things that had to do with hull space, it didn't like to be touched, and there was a 35 kiloton of explosive force left. Touch. The gin had been lucky. It had veered off fast enough, only taken a minor cosmetic damage. Above it, 180,000 miles, a new sun boiled to life, purple and red. The sky looking angry and bruised as an eye of hellfire opened up, blinked, and then closed. The djinn slowed down, overshooting the target by nearly a hundred miles, managing to miss the top of a mountain. It hit the water of the ocean, healed up, and slid into port of a city, grinding its full body length through buildings until it came to rest. Its mind clenched, expecting those massive tanks to unveil themselves. Instead, the water of the ocean rushed back in, lapping at its dead and damaged engines before suddenly returning to the bay. It rotated up extra thinking lobes, building two additional arrays. The Goliath they relied upon for higher analytical processing was now nothing more than boiling and shrieking house space particles. No matter, the city was still 80% intact. It represented a wealth of resources. It was time to gather. Balgret picked himself up off the floor, spitting blood from the split lip. His face shield was still up and he could see two layers of dust, one dropping down from the ceiling, one rising from the ferrocrete floor of the parking garage. He saw the humans getting up. They'd gone prone to when impact imminent had flashed on their visors. There was a creaking sound, followed by a snarl of their stressed integrity field. Balgret moved over next to his squad leader, who was next to the platoon sergeant, who was looking at the lieutenant, who was looking at one of the humans. What is it? The platoon leader asked. The Terran wiped his mouth, glanced at his gauntlet to check the blood, and then bared his teeth. The gin! <laughs> one of the new Mark IIs, he said. It landed near the city. How far away? The platoon leader asked. The human. Grinned. It landed. You mean surfed in and slid halfway into the city? Then you're right. His voice was full of amusement. The integrity field snarled again as the human pointed up. He's right on top of us. <laughs> Poker groaned, getting a look of ire from his squad leader. This just keeps getting better and better. Day one. End of chapter. Chapter 339. Terrasol. More Borgs patrolled the parking lot. Aerospace flighters moved in lazy circles around huge buildings. The halls were full of security troops with MP on their chests and shoulder pauldrons. 
Medics ran back and forth dealing with minor injuries. The office was missing the far wall, the window, the ceiling and floor towards the window, and the walls close to the outside wall. The ragged edges were solid gold, gleaming in the light. General Tic-Tac sat on a chair, rubbing his forearms together as the medic examined him. He tried to ignore what some of the military intelligence analysts were studiously ignoring. It was a grey, its skin like stone, winged and brutish looking. It had a long muzzle, fierce red eyes, gleaming ivory teeth and a red mouth. It didn't shift, it didn't move, it just stared at the computer terminal on the desk. If one were to open a dictionary and look up gargoyle, the creature would be squatting in the image box staring at you. Tic-Tac shifted his head slightly at the medic's gentle push. So, um, you had a standard M404 data link with a wall steel casing and flag officer upgrades, she asked. Yes, Tic-Tac said. Huh, well it's certainly pretty now, she said. She squinted at the data link housing, bringing up her surgical magnification. The casing of the data link was pure white, with gold swirls and decorative swoops adorned with tiny gems. The whole thing looked like it belonged in a religious reliquary, rather than on the side of a portly general's head. Does it feel any different? she asked. She wasn't even sure how to get this new casing open. Warmer, more like it's a part of me. I used to get a nagging itch behind my right ear when I did high encryption data transfers. But right now, I don't feel it, Tic-Tac said. He sighed. It was a normal M404 two hours ago. The medic moved around to the front of the general, lifting up a light. Track this, she said, moving the light back and forth. The general's eyes were bone white. She could see them move, but she didn't see any pupils. She shook her head. Well, sir, your biometrics are fine, but you've suffered some physical changes. Can you think of anything that might have caused them? She regretted the words as soon as she said them. Oh, I don't know. How about an angel manifested in my office? Tic-Tac yelled, standing up. He sat down, rubbing his forearms together again. Apologies, Sergeant. My nerves are a bit frayed. The medic glanced at the gargoyle. I understand, sir. General Fogrum, commander of Forkham Terrasol stepped in and looked around. Well, Imac, you look like you've had an exciting morning, he said. Gee, you think, Tic-Tac snarled, then caught himself. I'm sorry, sir. Having viewed the security tapes, your anxiety is perfectly understandable, the general said. The building's security systems detected no transmissions, no idea where they generated from, but I think it's safe to say that it wasn't some kind of prank. Woman went into labor from here to hell in Inky City, he chuckled. He turned to the soldier next to him. This is Private Ogwok Olsen Lamat, military intelligence. Got caught in the barracks sober, Private, Tic-Tac chuckled, pulling the Private's attention away from the crouching gargoyle. Um, yes, sir, the Private said. He pointed at the secure computer system that was normally hidden by the wooden paneling of the desk. It was exposed, and as everyone watched, it vibrated, bounced around a little, expanded weirdly, and then hopped up and down for a moment. I assure you, Private, my sec comp normally is quite well behaved, Tic-Tac said. What's making it do that? General asked, ignoring the medic who was examining Tic-Tac's ears. The portly general had bled from his ears despite the fact that his eardrums were intact. Well, from what I can tell, it might be the fact that an angel... Oh, 
I don't know. Delivered mail! Tic Tac shouted. The last part then caught himself, sitting down. Then went through my data link to the desk high security computer system. The private looked at the gargoyle and then at the computer, then at the gargoyle again, then burst out laughing. What's so funny, private? General Fogram asked. The private stopped laughing. The gargoyle is there to see when the email is opened. It's a read receipt. General Fogram harumphed. Well, who do you think sent it? To be honest, sir, I have a suspicion, but I'd like to bring in an expert, the private said. An expert in this, Fogram asked, looking doubtful. More than any of us, the private said. Fogram looked at Tic Tac, who just shrugged. The medic had plugged the external cable to the data link and was running function checks on it. They waited, watching as criminal investigations divisions took picture of the damage to the building. The colonel who entered had chaplain markers on his collar. He looked around, looked at the gargoyle, swallowed thickly, and moved up to the next to the two generals and the private. The medic had managed to get Tic Tac's data link casing off and was firing inside. She'd summoned the cyberneticist to get a good look at it. It looked really weird to her. Brother Sumpton, the chaplain said. He looked at the private. You were right. This looks like some kind of divine visitation. Gee, you think, Tic Tac said. Then he shook his head. Apologies. I'm still a little shook up, and the side of my head is wide open to the point that I'm wondering if the good medic is reading my thoughts. Nothing so nefarious, General. The medic said. Someone really should read that email, Tic Tac said. He pointed at his computer, which was still hopping and shaking. Whatever it is, it's really excited to be here. General Fulgrim nodded. He moved up to the keyboard, the holographic outline now inscribed in a gold on the desktop, and he reached down. The top of the desk turned into a fanged maw with tentacles on the side and ringed by over a dozen staring red eyes. General Fulgrim jumped back. Uh, um, I don't think I'm supposed to open that email, he said as the desk went back to normal. Tic Tac sighed and glanced at the medic. Mind putting my head back together, he asked. The medic flushed. I'd rather wait for the nice cyberneticist, sir. I'd rather open that message before my computer sprouts legs and runs away, Tic Tac said. The medic sighed, a long, suffering sigh that medics learn in early weeks of school and started putting the casing back on the data link. It only took a minute before she stepped back. Done, sir, she said. I advise against this. Duly noted, Tic Tac said, stepping forward. He put his hands over the desk and a circle of eyes opened up, blinked, then closed. Tic Tac looked at the screen, which had carvings of flowers and vines in bronze and gold leaf on the frame instead of black glass. He typed in his password, accessed his email, then entered his password again. The email waiting was obvious to everyone. For one, it sparked, burned with a white fire, and sparks shot off of it. Little cherubs lifted it up above the monitor. You don't have a VR system, do you? General Fulcrum said. No, sir, Tic Tac said. Yep, those are definitely cherubs, Brother Sumter said. Tic Tac reached out and touched the email, and it immediately opened. The gargoyle left from the corner, spreading its wings as it left the ragged hole in the hall. It dissolved into smoke as it flapped away from the building. There goes the receipt, the private from MI said. Scrolls pulled out of midair, rolling across the floor, 
even as schematics flushed on the screen. Tic Tac staggered back slightly, his hand going from his implant and his eyes crossing. With the sound of huge bells, the email vanished, the cherubs laughing and giggling as they cartwheeled away. The medic was crouched down, looking at one of the scrolls. She looked up, rounding. I recognize some of this, she said. General Forgrim shook his head. He wanted to run screaming, but he had certain image to uphold in front of the troops. What is it? It's circuitry for medical stasis pods. I recognize this part because about a hundred years ago, I had to repair a pod by hand with only schematics. She tapped it. It's the old version, the real old version. I was in a long sleep vessel that we found orbiting a dead planet. How old? General Fogram asked. The glassing, the medic said. The private and the chaplain all said at the same time. So, um, do you think I've got to feed it? Tic Tac asked, staring at the top of his desk. End of chapter. Chapter 340 Bulgret moved down the tunnel with the Terran known as Sergeant Perahit, dragging with a heavy flexible pipe behind him. Two green mantids and a pair of black mantids scurried along next to him. All four of them were dressed in combat armor and hurrying to keep up with Sergeant Perahit's long strides. We'll use the matter reclamation systems to pull the debris out, See if the tunnel collapsed because of the sheer weight of our visitor, or if there was some part of that extrudes further out of the hull that was driven into the ground by the crash, the sergeant was saying. Bulgert just nodded, triggering his ascent tab with his chin, panting and sweating as he pulled the hose behind him. The sergeant was carrying a heavy pack with a heavier-looking gun-like apparatus. He kind of understood what the system would do. The beam would tear apart the matter, using opposing charges, pull the vaporized matter up from the beam into a magnetic funnel, which would pour the matter into the hose. The hose would then suck it back, the massive matter tanks, back in the parking garage. Balgat and the two black mantids were to be on overwatch, while the big Terran and the two green mantids were running the system. Yeah, to admit... He had been frightened when a quick check had shown that all of the tunnels leading from the parking garage had collapsed. He had envisioned having to clear the tunnels by hand to get out, but the Terrans had simply approached it from a different angle. The rubble was up ahead. Huge chunks of ferrocrete, twisted piping and hot wires, chunks of random metal and gravel. Bulkett dropped the hose with a gasp, leaning against the wall. He watched as one of the greenies went up to the cables and tapped them with the blade arm. After a moment, he climbed down, putting up icons of a thumb pointing down. All right, let's get this done. On the clock, guys, the Terran said. He connected the hose to the pack on his back and then hefted the gun-like apparatus. Here we go. On the last word, he triggered it. It let out a loud, widening noise, but Polgut could see the beam was rapidly digging into the debris even as a thick grey fog swirled into the tunnel. The hose started thumping as the gaseous matter was pulled down the hose. Neat, huh? A black mantid said, putting a cigarette in their mandibles. Huh? Palgret said, jerking his attention to the mantid. The mantid lit his cigarette, which had red bands on it, then exhaled a cloud of smoke. He held up a cigarette. Anti-radiation... Looks weird, but it gets into your lungs and straight into your bloodstream to counteract any rad exposure, the mantid said. He waved a blade off at the human. Kind of cool, huh? 
Just disintegrate the rubble, suck it back to the matter tanks, use it to make guns. Weird, Palgrid admitted. The mantid chuckled. Yeah, humans are kind of weird. I can hear you, the human said, shifting his aim. One of the green mantids made a sharp motion and the beam cut off. There was silence for a moment as the green mantid slowly moved up and into the hole the beam had made. After a minute, he came back, icons flashing above his head too fast for Palgrids to understand. Battle steel, huh? How's the lengths or the clankers? Sergeant Perrot asked. More icons flashing. Are you sure? More flashing lights. All right, all right, I believe you, Technical Sergeant. I'm going to get asked the same question. A few more flashing icons. All right, back to glaring it, the human said. Hey, Palgrid said, motioning at the mantid smoking the cigarette to get his attention. Sup, the mantid said. Doesn't the precursor autonomous war machines of this class have like 50 foot thick armor? He asked. So, the mantid asked. Well, it's battle steel. How are we going to get through it? Or are we going under it? Palgrid asked. We go under it. When we exit, we're going to be right in front of what's waistline guns. We stay here, we're going to get killed when it takes an orbital shot. If we fight our way into it and blow the strategic thinking array, that's one more clanker out of the fight, the mantid said. But it's fifty foot thick armor, Palgrid said. The mantid waved at the human. So, we've got half a dozen humans, worse comes to worse. I don't know, they can just chew through it or something. Maybe draw a deck on it. That always helps. Ha de ha ha, the human said. Palgrit was quiet while the human kept working, the beam whining and humming, and the hose pulsing as it moved the matter away. Oops, the human said, suddenly snapping off the beam. Oops, what do you mean oops, the mantid asked. Palgrit saw the mantids all ready their weapons and grabbed his rifle, pulling it around and putting his finger on the safety lever. Um... Apparently a hatch opened and ripped into the ground. I might, and I mean might, have just torn off part of what looks like an NCV cannon, the human said. Well, don't just stand there and looking at it. Tear the rest away before it fires and kills us all, the black man did. That had been mostly silent, said. We've got our access point. Get the local troops up here, the human said, triggering the beam. Wow! Silicon, iridium, palladium, all kinds of good stuff. The black mantid activated his helmet, its covering his triangular head quickly. Get ready, he said. Balgrit took cover behind the large chunk of ferrocrete. One of the green mantids moved next to him, crouching down and unlimbering a tiny rocket launcher. The two black mantids took cover, while the other green one climbed on top of the human's back. There, I just ripped up the chamber. Wow, they used snub-nosed barrels. It's barely thirty feet long. There goes the feed mechanism, he said. He clicked it off. I think I hit a maintenance space. The green mantid on his shoulder jumped off, deploying little wings from the back of the armor. It spiraled up into the fog-filled hole. Palgrit tensed, feeling the thumbs cramp up slightly. After a few long minutes, the green mantid came gliding back down the spiral, landing on the human's shoulder. All right. 528 tossed a couple dozen mapping drones in through the maintenance access. Let's get a good map of the sucker, the human said. Don't you have maps from other ones? Palgrid asked. Not all the same, the little greenie had his feet transmitted onto his visor. Different factory, mission, designs. Oh, Palgrid said. Always asky ask question, the greenie said. Only dumb query is query not queried. 
Algret nodded slowly. Over the last few days, he had come to appreciate just how intelligent the Green Ones were. They weren't savants or caste workers with minds full of nothing but their bread and jobs, but highly intelligent creatures, just focused. He gotten used to the intense focus after being around the Terrans for a few days. Damn, this is a big one, the human muttered over the local talk channel. Looks like the maintenance bots are busy somewhere else. Maybe engine damage. Not detecting stable power in the cabling in the walls either. Platoon coming in, Pulgris platoon leader, Lieutenant Mokuru, said over the channel. The Lanaklan sounded stress. Pulgrit held position even after the rest of the platoon came jogging up. They had another human with them, this one followed by a half-dozen drones easily big enough for another human to hide inside of. Pulgrit's squad leader knelt down next to him. Anything? he asked. Pulgrit shook his head. The Terrans ripped through the fifty feet of armor like it wasn't there and then sent in a mapping drones. Said it's a big one. Got a manufacturing bay. Everything's thrown everywhere. Looks like there was a building assault vehicles. No repairs going on, no power, the human said. Lots of smashed junk. I'm pretty sure this one's crashed. Pulgrit could feel the tension in the air as he recited the mantras that he'd been trained in. He double-checked his gear, including the Terran additions, and waited, still crouched down behind the piece of ferrocrete. Most of the platoon was gathered up in a group, chatting amongst themselves while the lieutenant stood next to the Terran, who was still crouched down. Get your men to cover, one of the black mantids grated out, unfolding his helmet so that he could light another cigarette. Never know when a clanker is going to jump out at ya. Excuse me, Hogwarts squad leader asked, standing up and turning around to face the black mantid, who was putting his cigarette lighting device away. I think... Palgret would never be able to explain how exactly he knew, only that he somehow knew what was about to happen next. He reached out, grabbed the back of his squad leader's equipment belt, and yanked him down. The HB round was Palgret's squad leader by fractions of an inch, the swerved crack and bright yellow line close enough to bubble the top layer of laminate on the squad leader's helmet. Contact, the Terran yelled, turning towards where the wall in the tunnel was collapsed. Multiple contacts! The tunnel erupted in the thunder of gunfire. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.